So just ask yourself any time when something happens and you say, oh my God, this is terrible. Just pause and ask yourself, is it truly terrible? Is there any way in which perhaps in X years it could turn out to be a good thing? And then ask yourself the follow-up question. Is there anything I can do to actually make this a terrific outcome? Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hello, everybody. So today I'm going to talk about something that I run into a great deal in my coaching practice. And I have a lot of entrepreneurs who are successful. And they want to become even more successful. In the words of Steve Jobs, what they really want to do is they want to leave a dent in the universe. But they also know that there is something beyond material accomplishment in the world. And they have a very strong urge to grow spiritually as well. And somehow they see this as a conflict. You can have one or the other. You can achieve great success. Or you can be calm, cool, collected, remaining serene and happy. And they think that you are in conflict with each other. And I'm here to suggest to you that that is absolutely not true. You can achieve great success and you can be as calm, as serene as a Zen monk. In fact, it's incumbent upon you to try to do that. Because as you go that route, you will find that you achieve even greater success than you ever dreamed of. And what I'm going to share with you are five powerful mind hacks that will indeed propel you to great success. But here's the thing, it will also release you from the need for that success. Because if you need to have great success in order to feel fulfilled, you're chasing a wisp that does not exist. Great success is something that can come to you But if you need that great success, you won't get it. That's the paradox. So let's begin by defining what do we mean by great success. And many of us tend to define success by external metrics. One very common metric is how much wealth you have, material wealth. How big is your house? Do you travel first class? Do you travel by private jet? You know, are you known? Are you famous? And very often that's how we define success, both in our heads and when we're looking at someone else. You know, someone runs a company which is a billion dollars in revenue. So he's much more successful than you you're only running a company that has 50 million in revenue. So we tend to measure things by success, by what we can get, what we have, what we achieve. And we don't really define success by who we are. Let me give you an instance of this. I grew up in Delhi. We were a middle-class family. We were not poor, but there wasn't a whole lot of discretionary cash lying around. And one day my parents and I were going for a walk and we passed a man who had a shelf strapped to his stomach and he was selling stuff from the shelf. And one of the things he was selling was a book called Just Like Daddy. 
It had only a few lines of writing in each page. It was blue and it showed a little boy and he got up in the morning and he brushed his teeth just like daddy. It was actually two books in one because if you flipped it around, it turned pink and then there was a little girl who was doing things just like mommy. And for some reason, I really, really, really wanted that book. So I put in a petition and my parents looked at it and there were only a few lines of writing on each page and I was already reading junior classics. So my petition was denied. I was unhappy, but that's the way the cookie crumbled. We moved on. The guy with the shelf walked behind us. And every time I looked back, he'd flash the book at me. Now, my mother was a very frugal lady who hardly ever bought anything for herself, but she saw a purse that she really liked and she was reaching out for it. And I saw my opening and I dove in like a trained seal with tears streaming down my face. I bawled loudly and asked, how could she possibly buy something so utterly useless as a purse when there was this great educational material that they were denying me? It was a low blow. It worked. Back when the purse, I got just like daddy, just like mommy. There was distinct coolness between my parents and me, but I didn't care. The reason I mentioned that story is about a couple of decades after that, I ran into that book, just like daddy, just like mommy, in a flea market, and all the memories came flooding back. But there was a difference. Just like daddy, just like mommy, no longer had any hold on me. I did not want it. I did not not want it. It was irrelevant to me. I had outgrown my need for just like daddy, just like mommy. Look back on your life. I'm sure you can recall countless instances of things that you really, really, really wanted at one stage. You might have gotten it or you might not have gotten it. Think about old boyfriends or girlfriends. Think about toys that you wanted. At one time, you really wanted it, but now you can look back upon that and you're cold. You've outgrown your need for it. Today, right now, there is something that you really want and you don't have, and it's creating turmoil in your life. Maybe you want this coronavirus to go away so you can continue going on vacations and travel around the world. Maybe you want your in-laws to move to Australia. Maybe you want your kids to study hard, get good grades and get into Harvard. It doesn't matter. There's something you want and you don't have it and it's causing turmoil in your life. And my question to you is, would you rather get what you want or would you rather outgrow your need for it as I outgrew my need for just like daddy, just like mommy, and you've outgrown the need for countless things in your life. Don't answer the question, think about it, because this is a pretty good example of what I do in my programs, which is to get persons to think differently. And you will find that you can start defining success not by the number of things that you have accumulated, but by the number of things that you one time really, really, really wanted, but you've outgrown your need for them, they don't matter to you anymore. So in my book, success is internal. Success is when you have a very deep feeling of well-being, that you are okay. In fact, you have always been okay. In fact, you cannot not be okay. And when you're 
anchored in that sense of well-being, then you are a success. And from that place of well-being, you then address the areas of your life where you would like things to be different, but the emotional domain, the space from which you approach it is completely different. You don't go there from neediness. You go there from fullness. And paradoxically, once you do that, you'll find that you succeed far more and in greater measure than you ever dreamed possible. I'm going to come back to this. Many of us move through life and there is a low level of anxiety. You know, to the external world, you are completely successful. You are the person who has his or her act together. You're a role model and everybody wants to be like you. But in your own life, you have a low level of anxiety that never goes away. And this anxiety can be split up broadly into two parts. One of it is the world outside. Why is it not conforming to the way in which you want it to be? There's too much stuff happening. There are bad political leaders. There's racial strife. There is the possibility of war. There is disease and it's getting widespread. And all kinds of things are happening. And that's not the kind of world you want it to be. And to compound that, there is your life. And there are one or more areas of your life where you're not particularly happy. One very common one is how much you have to do and how you're not able to accomplish all of the things that you want to do, that you need to do, and somehow it's not getting done. You have a long to-do list, and every time you scratch out an item, it somehow mysteriously multiplies and adds itself to the tail of your list. There's too much to do. You don't have enough time. You're trying very hard. You're feeling overwhelmed. And all of this combines into a low level of anxiety. But this is always there with you all the time. Recognize that much of this anxiety is simply mental chatter. Mental chatter is an internal monologue that you have going on in your head, and it's there all the time. Begins when you get up in the morning, is with you throughout the day, is with you right now, as a matter of fact, when you're evaluating, is it true? Do I have mental chatter? Is this guy speaking the truth? It's always there. It's like an unwelcome relative who's shown up to your house and you can't kick him out. So you live your life as best you can with your mental chatter, but you don't recognize that that mental chatter is actually creating the world in which you live. So you live in a world and you want the world to be different than the way it is. And most of us have been conditioned to, if you want the world to be different, if you want your experience of life to be different, you have to go and do something about it. So for example, you are single, and you want to be in a relationship. Oh, okay, you've got to do things. You've got to go to all of these internet sites and fill in your profile. And you have to fill in your profile that it's extremely compelling to the kind of person that you would like to be in a relationship with. You go meet your friends and have your friends introduce you to potential dates and you go on social occasions, you join clubs, you become members of activity clubs, you do all kinds of things to meet a person who you could potentially be in a relationship with. 
I remember I was in that stage a few decades ago. And at that time, my world was very completely divided into persons who were potential dates, persons who could introduce me to persons who were potential dates or irrelevant. And that was my world right then. The world of frantic doing is all around us. Let's say you lost your job and you want one. Oh, that's easy. You have to go off, make a really good resume, go on the internet again and sign up with monster.com and all of the free sites. You have to send your resume over to persons who could be interested. You have to hit up your friends who are working and ask them if there's any job in their companies and to introduce you to others they know. And there might be jobs at their companies. You've got to go out and do, 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 do. That is the world of frantic doing. And it seems to work because everybody tells you, you know, you can't sit back. You have to go out and do. Against that is the world of calm being. And in calm being, you're anchored in your sense of self and you spend your effort and your emotional energy into clarifying exactly who you are, what you stand for, what you have to offer to the world. And from that space of calm, you do, in fact, take some of the actions that you do in the world of frantic being. But you do it from the knowledge and the serenity in which you are anchored. And when you do that, you find that you get results which are far, far, far better than you could ever have expected. And not only that, but your experience of life is different. So think about that. Would you rather be in the world of frantic doing or would you rather be in the world of calm being? And I'm going to give you some very powerful techniques that will help you remain in the world of calm being. So the first hack is the second arrow. The second arrow is one of the more powerful teachings of the Buddha. And the Buddha asked Ananda, his disciple, Ananda, if an arrow were to hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? And Ananda nodded his head. Yes, Lord, it would be very painful. If a second arrow were to hit you exactly where the first arrow hit, would it not be even more painful? Ananda nodded his head. Yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. Then the Buddha asked a surprising question. Why then do you shoot the second arrow? And I noticed some of you looking puzzled, so let me explain, and I'll explain with a story. There was a mother, and she had a son, and she really loved the son, and she was a good mother. And the son turned 16, and he got his provisional driver's license. And he was all excited. And one day he comes up to the mother and says, Hey, mom, I'm meeting up with a bunch of friends, and can I take the car? And the mother says, Of course not. You know, you just got your license. You're not a qualified driver. Where do you want to go? I'll drop you. And the son says, no, 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 mom, you don't understand. You can't be there. The mom says, okay, that's fine. There's Uber, there's Lyft. What? says, no, mom, you don't understand. I have to take the car and you have to not be there. And the mother says, no. But the son begs and wheedles and pleads. And you know how children are. And bit by bit, he wore his mother brown. And she took promises and you're going to be back by 10 o'clock. Yes, yes, I'll be back by 10 o'clock. And you're not going to drink anything. No, no, I'm not going to drink. And so finally, she hands him the car keys. And of course, once he gets the car keys, he completely forgets all the promises he made, does not call, forgets the curfew, has too many beers, 
And on the way back, he gets into a serious accident and has to be operated on immediately. And the mother is in the hospital, you know, next to the operating room. And when he's moved to the ICU, she rushes home to have a quick shower so she can change and be back in the hospital. And at that time, her friend calls. And her friend says, what kind of a mother are you? How could you possibly have let him take the car? You're not a mother. You're a murderer. Now, you're probably shocked that a friend would call and say something like that to the mother at a time like this. But you would almost certainly be less shocked if I said it wasn't the friend who said that. It was what she told herself. That is the second arrow. The thing to remember about the second arrow is that it is always delivered by means of mental chatter. Having her son in the operating room, not sure how the recovery is going to be, is bad enough. Does it make matters any better to tell herself that she is a murderer? No, you can see that intellectually, but we do it all the time. In fact, for the persons I coach, if they stopped at the second arrow, they would be in wonderful shape. Most of the time, the problem is in the second or even the third and fourth arrow. It is the 15th and the 25th arrows that really, really, really hurt. And as I said, the second arrow and all subsequent arrows are always delivered by mental chatter. So here is the hack. Every time something happens, any situation that you find that is of concern to you, that is troubling you, recognize that your mental chatter about that situation makes it at least an order of magnitude worse or several orders of magnitude worse. I was speaking to a group of entrepreneurs just earlier this week, and one of them had a business reverse and immediately got onto, oh my God, what's going to happen? Am I going to have to lay off people? This is terrible. My business is going to fold. All of that is mental chatter. He is a perfect example of what Mark Twain once said, which is, I have suffered a great many disasters in my life, most of which never happened. Those are all second arrows. So every time you are feeling overwhelmed, every time you feel that there is some situation happening which is beyond your control and things are getting off, recognize that your mental chatter about that situation is making it at least an order of magnitude worse. You're shooting second arrows at yourself. And observe this happening because the best way to stop shooting second arrows is to recognize that you are shooting second arrows. One of the things I've realized after conducting well over a thousand interviews with the world's greatest thought leaders in everything from entrepreneurship to spirituality to health and wellness to relationship is that life is enormous and there are so many ways we can make our life better and better in every way, in every single day. If you're successful in just one area of life, you might just suck in another. I've known billionaires whose romantic lives were in shambles. I've known incredibly emotionally intelligent people who just couldn't make money. And that's totally fine. It doesn't matter where you are. Life doesn't have to stay the same forever. You're not cursed or destined to be miserable or unlucky in love or struggling to make ends meet. You were just never thought how to have it all, how to do things differently, how to master 
the human experience from a mind, body, and soul perspective. This is where Mind Valley membership comes in. When you become a Mind Valley member, you are coached by the greatest teachers in the world. You get to live a life beyond your wildest dreams and learn the best systems, protocols, methods, step by step by step in just 20 minutes a day to get there. You become the man or woman that you've always aspired to be. And this happens in the easiest, most effective way because of the Mind Valley transformational model. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now. Don't settle for ordinary. Don't settle for your life the way it is now. Aspire to step into your greatness. Let's move on to the second hack. And this, by the way, is supremely powerful. It works in your personal life. It works in your professional life. It works on many dimensions. Here's how we live a life. We live our lives saying, I set a goal for myself. I succeeded. Life is a blast. Or I set a goal for myself. I failed. Life sucks. We live in an oscillating cycle between elation and despair, and we tend to spend more time at the despair end of the spectrum. It is a lousy way to live. There is an alternative. Set a goal for yourself, set a vision, and try your level best to achieve it. But once you have set the vision, totally forget about it, ignore it. Because the value of setting a goal is that it gives you direction. Once the direction has been established, forget about the goal. Instead, pour all of your emotional energy into what are the activities that you have to undertake in order to meet the goal. If you meet the goal, fantastic. If you don't meet the goal, fantastic. This is what surprises many persons when I talk about it because we are all indoctrinated with the notion that the benefit and the sole purpose of setting a goal and trying our level best to achieve the goal is achieving the goal. No. The purpose of setting a goal and trying your level best to achieve the goal is the learning and the growth that happen in you and to you as you try your level best to achieve the goal. If you actually achieve the goal, fantastic. That is a bonus. If you don't achieve the goal, the learning and the growth that have already happened to you, so you are ahead of the game, it is a no-lose proposition. The goal is an outcome, a destination, and the destination is a mirage. You get there, you tarry a few moments, and then you're off somewhere else. The journey is with you always. When you invest in the process, you start enjoying the journey, and the journey is the only thing that you have. The journey is with you always. But here is the funny thing, and this is the paradox. When you try your level best to achieve something, and in your mind, you're perfectly confident, calm, serene, if you achieve it, wonderful, if you don't achieve it, wonderful, then the probability you will achieve the outcome that you want actually increases. Let's say you're in a negotiation. 
Do you recognize that you're never in a better place in a negotiation than when you are genuinely prepared to walk away? Think about that. You're negotiating with someone and you're genuinely prepared to walk away. And you're never stronger than you are at that position. It works exactly the same way in life. You have a goal, you try very hard to achieve the goal, but you know that the benefit of trying very hard to achieve the goal is the learning and growth that will happen in you and to you, and you're perfectly okay whether you achieve the goal or not. John Wooden was one of the willingest coaches in any sport. He led UCLA to an unprecedented number of victories in the NCAA and an unprecedented number of appearances in the final as well. And he was the first person to reach the Basketball Hall of Fame, both as a player and as a coach. And he used to talk about, whenever I coach a new team, I never spoke about winning or outscoring opponents. I always talked about when it is over, did you do the best you were capable of? If you did the best you were capable of, the score really doesn't matter. But if you did the best you were capable of, I fancy you will find the score to your liking. Perfect articulation of invest in the process, do not invest in the outcome. So wherever you are, if you're striving for entrepreneurial success, if you're striving to reach up a corporate hierarchy, invest in the process, do what you have to, pour all of your emotional energy into the activities that you have identified that will help you lead to the goal and forget about the goal. And you will find that you reach success, not only the success I talked about earlier in terms of who you're being, But paradoxically, even the external success is more likely to happen if you follow this route. This is something I really want you to get a handle on. Your awareness is like a flashlight. Let me repeat that. Your awareness is like a flashlight. What does a flashlight do? A flashlight illuminates whatever you shine it on. Shine it on the ceiling, lights up the ceiling. Shine it on the wall in front of you, it lights up the wall. Let's try an experiment. Right now, take the flashlight of your awareness and shine it upon the seat in which you are sitting. Got that? Do that now. So what happens? You become aware of the pressure of your buttocks on the chair. You become aware of the fabric or the leather pressing against the back of your thighs. One minute ago, you were not aware of any of this, but now you are aware of this, right? That's what happens when you use your awareness like a flashlight. So our awareness is like a flashlight, and what do we do? That's simple. We shine it on the things that are wrong in our lives, or more precisely, on the things that we think are wrong in our lives. And that's what the flashlight lights up. And what about the 10, 50, 200 things which are pretty darn good about your life? You never shine the flashlight of your awareness on them, so it passes by unnoticed. Virtually everybody on this call is incredibly privileged. Think about that. Do you have to bother about whether you're going to have dinner? Do you have a bed to sleep in? Do you have a roof over your head? Any one of these is a big deal in a big chunk of the world outside. 
And we have all of that. So when I pointed out, you nod your head, yes, yes, I feel incredibly privileged. The problem is you don't feel incredibly privileged. You feel put upon and stressed out. And the reason for that is where do you shine the light of your awareness? I would like to get you started on using your awareness as a tool. Shine it on the many things that are really good in your life. I would recommend that you begin this a few minutes before you go to bed. Think about all the many things in your life that make you truly blessed. This is not a thinking exercise. This is an experiential exercise. So you can't go good health check, roof overhead check, bed to sleep in check. You have to actually feel gratitude coming in you at the tremendous good fortune that has been bestowed on you. And it may take some time for you to get to that stage. When you get up in the morning, don't go immediately to the place of, oh my God, there's too much to do and I don't have enough time to do it all. Instead, call back that feeling of gratitude. Bathe in it, immerse yourself in it, wallow in it. And as you go through the day, consciously shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many ways in which you are truly fortunate. And it is my hope that you will get to the point where your default emotional domain is one of appreciation and gratitude. Because guess what? When you're living in the default emotional domain of appreciation, gratitude, you're not anxious, you're not fearful, you're not worried, the two cannot coexist. So think about that. Every time you're troubled, remember that your awareness is like a flashlight and you are troubled and overwhelmed because you're shining that flashlight on the things that you think are wrong in your life. And when you do that, the emotions associated with that come up and they overwhelm you. But you can learn to shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many things which are good in your life. And from that space, which will take you to the space of calm being that I mentioned earlier, and from that space, you then reach out to tackle the things in your life that you wish were different. Here is another extremely powerful technique. And this has to do with our habit of labeling stuff that happens to us. No matter what happens to us, we immediately in our minds categorize it as this is good or this is bad. There is a Sufi tale which addresses this, and I have used it before in Mind Valley, so I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but it's worth repeating anyway. There was a man and his son, and they lived in a beautiful valley, and they were very happy, but they were dirt poor. And the man got sick and tired of being dirt poor, and he decided he was going to become a rich man by breeding horses. He bought a stallion, didn't have money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed heavily from the neighbors. And the very day he got a stallion, it kicked the top bar loose from the paddock where he housed it and ran away. And the neighbors came around saying, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away, and you still owe us money. And the man said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses which were close to where the man lived and he enticed them into the paddock which he had repaired so escape was no longer possible. And now he had the stallion back plus a dozen wild horses which made him a rich man by the standards of that village. So the neighbors came around saying, we thought you were destitute but fortune has smiled upon you, how lucky you are. 
And he said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The man and his son started to break the horses so he could sell them on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg and it broke and it healed crooked. The neighbors came around clucking, clucking. He was such a fine young lad and now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How unfortunate. And the man shrugged and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country and press gangs moved to the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young young men to serve in the army. But this man's son was spared because he had a game leg. And the neighbors came around crying, we don't know if we will ever see our sons alive, but you still have your son, how lucky you are. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. But look back on your life and can you imagine anything that happened that at the time it happened, you thought this was terrible, but now you can look back upon it and say, hey, that wasn't so bad, or even that was good. There was this guy who was a very good swimmer and he wanted to do well in an important meet. And a few months before that, he slipped on a patch of ice and broke his wrist. Now that's a bad thing, right? He certainly thought so. He thought his professional career was over until his coach told him to get on with it. So he did. But for weeks and weeks, the only thing that he could do was stay by the edge of the pool and kick. Well, his teammates, his teammates were practicing furiously. We fast forward to the meet, and in one of the more important events of the meet, his opponent swam the race of his life. And he was behind at the halfway mark, and he should have lost that race. But he hung in there, and he won that race by one one-hundredth of a second. It was one of the closest finishes in the history of athletic competition. And they had to go to the fast frame-by-frame photographs to show that he touched the wall a whisker before his inspired opponent. But those photographs showed something else as well. At the finish, his legs were still kicking. His opponent's legs were trailing. The swimmer was Michael Phelps. The race was the 100-meter butterfly in the Beijing Olympics. And that gave him his seventh gold medal. And without it, he would never have gotten eight gold medals in a single Olympic to create an all-time record. He always had a killer kick. But those weeks and weeks of kicking by the side of the pool gave him muscles he never had before. So arguably, a case can be made that breaking his wrist was the very best thing that happened to him from an athletic competition perspective. I remember I was speaking, addressing a group of entrepreneurs earlier this month, and one of them said, Professor Rao, I have a perfect example for you, and a key employee of his left And this was a key employee who was the only one who knew about a certain piece of technology. And as a result of that, he said, I lost about $400,000 in revenue. But because this key employee left, I hired another person. This person was also very good technically, but he was also a good manager. So he was not only able to retrieve the customer that I lost, but he built up a team of persons who were proficient in what needed to be done. So I'm no longer dependent on one person. Business is back where it was. And perhaps that person leaving was a wonderful thing because I certainly never would have fired him. 
So just ask yourself any time when something happens and you say, oh my God, this is terrible. Just pause and ask yourself, is it truly terrible? Is there any way in which perhaps in X years it could turn out to be a good thing? And then ask yourself the follow-up question. Is there anything I can do to actually make this a terrific outcome? And you will have moved from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. That is how you become incredibly resilient. Now here is a paradox, and it comes in so many ways. In the Buddhist tradition, for example, the Buddha is supposed to have told his disciples, slow human birth is very rare. Once you have human birth, the desire for enlightenment is even rarer. And who knows whether this will come again. You don't have any time to waste. Spend every minute in contemplation, meditation, and spiritual progress. And at the same time, there is the injunction that things happen at the right time. The flower ripens when it is ready to. You cannot hurry the process. And it seems as if these two are in contradiction to each other. But actually, they're not. This is only an apparent paradox. And remember, all paradoxes are resolved when you reach a higher level of consciousness, a higher level of thinking. And here is something for you to know. The busyness that you feel is entirely in your head. It's mostly mental chatter telling you how much you have to do, how little time you have to do it in, how far behind you are in your aspirations and your to-do list, and this is uncomfortable and you shouldn't be here. That's all mental chatter. And the way out of that is very simple. You have an hourglass. There's grains of sand in the bulb below, and there's grains of sand in the bulb above, and only one grain of sand at a time can go through the narrow neck. That grain of sand is the task at home, the task to which you have to devote your attention. So screen out your mental chatter and focus exclusively on what it is that you are doing and not the upset at many things that you should have done but haven't, not the worry of whether you're going to get your to-do list, just focus calmly, patiently on the task at hand. This is a learnable skill, and when you learn to direct your mental chatter, not all over the place, on the many things that you need to do that you have not done, on the many ways in which you are inadequate, stop comparing yourself with others, but just focus on what it is that you have to do. And you will find that you will get more done and better. In other words, you will become both more effective and more efficient. And I'm going to leave you with a quote now. I'm not going to explain it, but if you ponder this quote, you will find it makes a lot of sense to you. And this also bears with what I talked about earlier about investing in the process, not the outcome. And the quote is, the purpose of washing dishes is not to get them clean. The purpose of washing dishes is to wash the dishes. Ponder on this because there is profound wisdom on it. And now I have a bonus hack for you. And the picture actually tells you all about it, but let me explain. In India, you have temple elephants 
and frequently the temple elephants are tethered to a stake in the ground, and it's a very small stake, and all the elephant has to do is to lean or pull, and the stake will be uprooted or the rope or chain will break. But the elephant never does that. And the reason the elephant never does that is when the elephant was a baby, it was tethered to that same stake and it tried to get free and it could not. So in its head is the notion that stake is very powerful. I cannot uproot it. I cannot leave. And then the elephant grows and becomes big and powerful and a slight tug and this rope breaks so the stake is uprooted, but it never gives that tug. In exactly the same way, you are constrained. You're constrained not by your circumstances, not by your background. You're constrained by the stories you tell yourself about your background. We're very fond of saying, you know, the past is a past and there's nothing I can do about it. Not true. You can quite literally change your past. You can rewrite it and you rewrite it by changing the stories you tell yourself about it. There was a student of mine who had a really, really troubled upbringing, abused by people close to her, several foster homes. And she was very bright, graduated from a top university, went to a top business school. And because she was very bright, she would get a job. And then because she couldn't get along with anyone, she would get fired from her job. And this happened numerous times. And after a while, people stopped offering her jobs because they looked at her history of short stints and said, boy, there's got to be something wrong here. And she used to say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I had such a troubled upbringing. That's made me the way there is, and there's nothing I can do about it. And shortly after taking my course, she changed the story she told herself. And she started telling herself, because of what has happened to me in the past, I've been privy to a range of experience of both the best in humanity and the worst in humanity. And most people never get to experience that. And because of that, I have a better understanding of persons and I can use that to progress in my career. It took a while for her to really feel comfortable with that story. But when she did, she was offered another position. And this time she did get fired and bits and pieces. She built her life together and became quite successful. Change the stories you tell yourself and you can quite literally rewrite your past. The past is not a given. It is constantly evolving. And you can evolve. You can facilitate the direction that it was and will take you. And with that, I want to leave you with this wonderful quote by Shantideva. I do not crave suffering, but fool that I am, I crave the things that bring me suffering. We have so many things we want, great material wealth, fame, position, power, and we strive for all of that. And there is nothing wrong with the striving, but there is everything wrong with that striving and the expectation that if I achieve it, then I will be happy, fulfilled, complete. You are happy, fulfilled, and complete right now. 
And your job is to recognize that. And from that space of happiness, completeness, and fulfillness, then go ahead and try to achieve whatever it is that calls to you. But don't do it with the expectation that that will confer that fullness on you. Fool that I am, I crave the things that bring me suffering. Every time your well-being is dependent on someone else, fame is dependent on other people acclaiming you, achievement is dependent upon other people saying you have done something great. Anytime you do that, you're handing the keys of your well-being over to somebody or something else. Don't ever do that. Retain the keys to your well-being. Don't ever hand them over. And now I have time for questions. Sabishek, are there any questions? Thank you so much, Professor Rao. That was profound. And we do have some questions. The first one is from Tabitha Wyatt. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned about how once you've set your end goal, forget about them and focus on the process. But people in the Mind Valley community also practice another tool called creative visualization. But the tool asks you to focus on your end goal and visualize it clearly every single day. So how would you differentiate between what you said and between creative visualization? There's a great difference between seeing something as a computer sees it versus how we see it. Let me give you an example. When Gary Kasparov, who is arguably one of the greatest chess players ever in the history of the game, was facing Deeper Blue, the IBM computer, the second time, it was the very first time that Kasparov was not able to intimidate his opponent. In many instances, just the thought that someone was facing Gary Kasparov, the highest rated chess player ever, would make them nervous and they would lose. The computer was not intimidated by Gary Kasparov. And in fact, eventually, Gary Kasparov was intimidated by the fact that the computer was not intimidated by him. The computer would make a weak move. He would make a strong reply. And instead of being shaken up, the computer simply would go on, make the next move and the next move. The point I'm trying to make is the following. When you're looking at a goal, if you're simply looking at it from the perspective of this is where I want to go and this is where I'm at, there is no problem. But if you look at it and you let emotion creep in, oh my God, it's so far, I've made no progress, then you have a problem. So when you are doing creative visualization, if you're doing it from the perspective of simply noting where the goal is and noting where you are so you can take appropriate steps, that's fantastic. But if you allow yourself to get deflated, there's still a thousand miles to go, then you're screwed. So if you are doing creative visualization, look at it, but leave your emotions and particularly your emotions about, I have so far to go, so much to do, I'm overwhelmed, I can't do it all, that you have to drop. Next, Abhishek. Right, the next question is very popular and people want you to explain the dishwashing quote. It's been asked by at least five people. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping to skip that, but I will. So here is what happens. We're always trying to look ahead. And I think one of the best ways to live life is in the title of that wonderful book by Ram Das, which is Be Here Now. So when you're washing dishes, put all of your attention on the dish itself and the act of washing. 
Feel the warmth of the water on your hand or your gloves if you're wearing them. Feel the detergent against the side of the dish, how it is getting the dish clean. And just immerse yourself in the act of washing. And when you do that, you will find that you are enjoying it. And as a byproduct, the dish is becoming clean anyway. Your experience of washing the dishes changes completely when you're washing the dishes to wash the dishes as opposed to getting them clean. You know, people talk about, I want to climb Mount Everest. How much time do you spend atop of Mount Everest? A few minutes to a half hour at first. You get up there, your buddy takes a picture of you, your buddy gets up there, you take a picture of him, and then you're on your way down and you hope you don't get killed in an avalanche. So if you're going to climb Mount Everest, it's a good idea to enjoy the weeks and months of acclimatization on Base Camp 1, Base Camp 2, and all the rest of that. So it works the same way in life. The journey is the only thing you have. Focus on the journey. Invest in the process. Do not invest in the outcome. When you're washing the dishes, wash the dishes. They will become clean as a byproduct without your having to obsess about it. Next, Abhishek. Wow. The next question is about hack one, how to stop the second arrow. Sulakshana Divekar says the mental chatters are automatic and recognizing doesn't really stop it. Can you please elaborate how to stop it with your personal experience? Yes. You cannot stop mental chatter. Mental chatter is always there. Imagine that it's a sunny day and you're lying on a grassy knoll and you look above and there are clouds in the sky. You shut your eyes, open in 10 minutes, and those clouds are gone and there are other clouds in the sky. Mental chatter is exactly like that. They're like clouds in the sky. They're neither good nor bad. They're just there and you cannot stop them. Our problem is not that we have mental chatter. Our problem is that we don't observe our mental chatter. We become our mental chatter. And when you become your mental chatter, it leads you to all kinds of places you don't want to go. And it is possible to separate yourself by becoming a witness. Observe your mental chatter happening and describe it to yourself in non-judgmental terms. Imagine you're an invisible entity suspended a foot above your head and you're simply recording what's going on. Here she is. She's reaching for another slice of pizza. She said she would not have fatty foods, but she's now reaching for a second slice of pizza. Not judgmentally, just description. This is what is happening. And the more you can become the observer of your mental chatter, the less power it has to take you to places where you don't want to go. This is incredibly easy to describe, incredibly easy to understand, incredibly difficult to actually implement. Very often you start being a witness and you lose the witness in seconds. So you have to be persistent and patient and keep doing it all the time. And when you do that, and if you're patient and persistent, then you will eventually get a handle that. All of you have smartphones. Here's my smartphone. Look at how many alarms I have. And I set them to go off at random. And every time it does, it's a sign for me to become a witness to my mental chatter instead of being carried off by my mental chatter. This is such an important exercise. It is a cornerstone of my coaching and my programs. So the very first exercise that I have everybody do, and this is a rest of your life exercise. You cannot stop mental chatter, but you can be the observer of the mental chatter. And when you're the observer of your mental chatter, 
it has much, much, much less ability to drag you where you don't want to go. Wow, that is profound. Well, I would love to take more questions. Unfortunately, Professor, we are out of time. And I just want to thank you so much for coming here, giving us your time and sharing your profound wisdom with all of us. Tribe, did you love Professor Rao's sessions? If yes, please go ahead and leave some comments in the chat. Let him know how much you loved it. And if you want to know more and you want to reach out to Professor Rao for mentorship for your business and leadership, you can send an email at srikumar.rao at the rate theraoinstitute.com. srikumar.rao at theraoinstitute.com. And if you want to go deeper into Professor Rao's teachings, you can always take the quest for personal mastery on the Mind Valley app. And you can get this and much, much more from this amazing, amazing teacher. Professor Rao, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure and entirely. Nice and to those of us on the call, whichever part of the world you're in, I wish you a terrific day and week and all the best to you. Peace. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.